I'm Kyle Carezzi, and welcome to Best of Spook Show, where I pick out my favorite quarantine spook show stories. This first story is about a man who finds himself in a sticky situation where he takes his fondness for spiders way too far. From episode 3, this story is called Spiders, Friend and Foe. bugs. The only thing he loved more than bugs was spiders. He loved spiders. He constantly had to correct everyone that spiders weren't insects. Insects had six legs. Spiders had eight. Therefore, spiders were much more badass than insects. He would never, he didn't collect spiders. He would never keep them in jars or anything. But he had a barrage of different types of arachnids in his backyard. And when he saw them, he'd always hang out with them, let them crawl on his fingers. Even if he saw a spider in his house, build a web in the corner of his room, he would let that spider keep a, keep a web in the corner of the room as like a room and board kind of a situation so that the spider would catch bugs and therefore earn its pay. spiders. Even when if he was hanging out with friends, he was always giddy about seeing spiders and whatnot. If, they, if he walked in a park with other friends and whatnot, he would always stop if he saw a spider and be like, oh, let's hang out with the spider for a bit. And his friends would be like, all you do is hang out with spiders. And you just hang out with them and you just, you know, they're just little, they're just little creatures and whatnot, you know. You can just look up pictures. Why don't you just go study spiders or something? And he's just like, I study life. But I don't just study spiders. I study insects. I just hang out with them, let them crawl on my fingers, let them in my house. Maybe I'll leave them some crumbs or something. You know, and spiders, some bugs, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave some webs open in my house. But I love spiders. So, one day he was sitting on his, uh, sitting next to a window, having a cup of tea and a cookie. And a spider crawled up on the windowsill, and he's just like, oh yeah, another spider, how lovely. You know, spiders, I think I relate to spiders more than people in a lot of ways. In fact, you little spider, or my best friend, he started to say. And the spider was just like, hey. And the, he was like, what? You need to knock off this uh, spider business here. And he's just like, well, what do you mean, little spider friend? And he's just like, yeah, that's right there. Don't call me your spider friend. You don't even know me, all right? hanging out with all these spiders. 
think you know all these spiders. Me, on the behalf of the spiders in your backyard, please leave us alone. Let us do our spider things. If any spiders come and want to do a room and board situation with the corner of your room to catch bugs and stuff, in order to keep a web in your house, you know, that's cool. We're grateful for that. But, like, don't, you know... Wait, little spider friend, come back. And the spider just starts creeping away, and then that's the end of that. Eventually, he would go in his backyard, and he'd never see spiders. And when he saw a spider, they just turned the other way immediately. And it's just like, ah. I always thought of myself as a friend of the spiders, like the uh, grizzly man guy. But actually, the spiders are my foe. I don't know what to do about this. college with who studied arachnids and whatnot, and he constantly consulted him about spider shenanigans and whatnot. So he called him, and the professor says, uh, what is it this time? Yeah, the spiders in my backyard don't want me to hang out with them in the, anymore. Is there any way I can change your mind? And the professor's just like, uh, you know, I don't, you know, it's, you know, it's, Humans do their thing. Spiders do their thing. Maybe you shouldn't push yourself on these spiders, you know. If you co it's, you know, it's great to coexist and whatnot. But spiders have other shit to deal with than you wanting to hang out with them. And then the professor hung up. And he sat down. Really quizzically, and it's just like, ah. I really want to hang out with these spiders, you know. So he's just like, you know, fuck it, I just want to hang out with these spiders, I'm gonna do it. So he goes in the backyard and he does what he usually does, he picks up the spiders, lets them crawl on his fingers and whatnot, and eventually started to keep spiders in jars over time. Eventually started a collection of spiders, you know. He didn't see it in the way of friendship as he used to, but he was just like, yeah, spiders are just something I'm really into now. And he had pet spiders, even got a tarantula, got it shipped from, you know, where you find tarantulas and whatnot. He, he changed his relationship with spiders, as someone just into spiders instead of someone trying to be their friend. And then one day he wakes up, and his wrists are constrained by spider webs, layers and layers of them, so he can't break three. And he's just like, oh, I'm trapped here. His ankles are the same thing. Again, constrained to his bedpost. And his room is filled with spiders. Wall to wall. Ceiling and floor. And he's just like, oh, what's going on? And then the first spider that confronted them on that day, having tea and a cookie, said, we told you to leave us alone. We just want to do spider shit, catch bugs and stuff, and build really fucking cool webs. Some of us may place those webs in places where people run into them, but you know, we, it's a process of building webs and stuff, but we told you to just let us be. But now, we gotta do away with you. And he says, oh no, what, what kind of spider doom are you gonna bestow upon me? And the spider said, Well, we already did. We laid a bunch of eggs in your stomach. They should hatch at any moment. 
he says, oh my gosh, no. So he breaks out of the web, and he runs out of his room, out of his house. And he's just, uh, I just gotta do something about these spiders. So he goes to the pharmacy across the street. And he's just like, oh, I need something to get rid of these spiders. And the pharmacy person is just like, we don't, uh, we don't know how to treat that. We're not a doctor. You should call an ER. And he says, oh, great, good idea. So he calls the ER and he goes to the hospital and says, like, oh, we're being quarantined for COVID now. He says, like, shit, never mind. So he bails. So he says, like, fuck, what am I going to do with all these spider eggs festering inside me? So he goes back to his house and he finds a gallon of milk uh, in his fridge. And he's just like, oh, that's it. So he chugs the milk as much as he can. Eventually he vomits into the sink with the spider eggs along with it. Some of them were already hatched, already crawling into his belly. And they look up, up at him and they say, Father. And he's just like, what? When the spiders leg egg, legged egg, laid eggs in your stomach, they took your, they, the eggs absorbed your DNA. And now we are, we are part you. And he's just like, um, uh, Okay. <laughs> uh, I didn't plan for this. Um, no, no one ever does. Well, I got an idea. Um, so he scoops up his spider babies, about 50 of them. And uh, just and the other eggs as well, because they're his kin also. Into his little tank. And he goes back into his room and says, like, Hey, um, we got a... I don't know how many of you laid eggs in my belly, but we gotta handle some sort of like custody system with these spiders. I mean, I can do weekends or half the week if you wanna hang out with them the other week. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but uh, we gotta we gotta figure something out here. And then the head spider that approached him uh, during the day, he had tea and a uh, cookie. He was just like, well. Alright, we can follow some contracts. We can make this work. We will accept you as one of us if you take care of our kin. And, like, uh, the guy was just like, yeah, uh, that sounds great. I mean, you know, I kind of have, have kids to take care of. I'm not going to just, like, hang out with you all day, you know. And he says, alright, well, let's get to it. So, uh, he hires a lawyer and he comes by and he starts, uh, drafting a custody system, you know, just like, all right, well, I think we can, okay, so half the, so half the week in the backyard, half the week in the house, um, I got some jars that they can stay in, it's like, no, we, we're not really in the jars, just let us out in the open, it's like, all right, fine, that works, you know, I can, I can dedicate a room in my house to just, like, having spider webs, and you guys can just, like, hang out there, it's like, yeah, I think the kids are really like that, you know, that'd be really cool, and it says, yeah, but what about school, should they go to school, or are they gonna be, like, half human, and it's just like, no, nah, they're gonna be spiders and whatnot, you know. I mean, they'll have human DNA, but they're not gonna be human enough to, like, want to, like, do, like, human shit all the time. And it's just like, alright, well, we can take care of that. The contracts are signed, and then... And then him and his 50, uh, spider babies. They just live on in the house, and eventually the spider babies grow up into spider adults. Some of them go to college, some of them go, uh, travel the world. 
as just like spider people, you know, hanging out among spiders and humans. And then one day, he's gotten older, hanging out with his spider children, all 50 of them. They're all, you know, middle-aged adults, all having very fulfilling lives and families of their own. And then he's sitting, uh, lounging on his lounge chair next to the fire, hearing it crackle in the background. And it's just like, oh, I couldn't ask for anything more. All of you, all of you children, filled my life with so much love and joy and satisfaction. spider babies all agree in their own ways they all have their own personalities all have their own lives to deal with and just like yeah that's right that's right dad you just you just go rest now and he says i think i will so he leans back and then passes on and then the spider babies are just like huh he was a great dad ejaculate it makes the story a lot more fucked up anyway this next story is a bit of a palate cleanser it's about the legendary mothman it's part two of a four-part story and it's where he's on a journey to find peace from episode 21 this story is called you are the pineapple on my pizza Meanwhile, in West Virginia, Mothman was chasing automobiles. On most nights, he would just run on the asphalt in the crevices of West Virginia and just chase cars. You know. He didn't quite remember how he became a Mothman. But he just certainly loved to just interact with civilians, you know, give them a good spook. He didn't know the ways of humans or mortals. He just hung up by himself in the woods. By golly, he just really enjoyed himself. As he's roaming through the woods, he sees a distant fire, and he's just like, oh, people must be camping. So he goes through the trees, and he just, he doesn't get too close, he just kind of peers out. He knew people were always alarmed by his bright red eyes, especially reflected by light. So he peered out and looked around. And all these teenage campers, you know, playing acoustic guitar, telling scary stories by the fire, making out and stuff. They saw him and just like, oh shit, Mothman! And then they flee. And Mothman chases after them a little bit. 
but in his head he's just like, no, I just want to hang out, come on. But they all left. Mothman knew that no one wanted to hang out with him. Ever since uh, John Keel came to town and wrote that book about him, allegedly about him, he certainly didn't consent to having a book written about him. You know, people just knew about him all throughout the country, and especially through West Virginia. There was a statue built of him, but he didn't, you know, he didn't consent to a statue being built of him. He's actually been to the statue at nightfall, and he looked behind it, and he was just like, oh, how did they get my ass right? They had a Mothman festival. He was never invited. There was one year when he tried to crash the festival. You know, like, oh, if it's a festival about me, I'll just, you know, come hang out. But then he made a surprise, surprise appearance, and then everyone kind of freaked out, and then called their local UFO radio stations and reported the sighting, and he's just like, oh, I just want to fucking... I just need a fucking break for once. That's what Mothman thought to himself in his, uh... Part human, part moth language in his head. Unique to his own. Because he's never encountered any moth people like him. Sometimes he'd think to himself, Oh, maybe I am just, a uh, Some sort of mirage projected by... Aliens and creatures from other dimensions or from UFOs or something. And then he thought about it and he's just like, no, that's kind of fucking dumb. John Keel's kind of a moron for saying that about me. Whatever. I just want to fucking ch chase cars and hang out, you know? He liked that he could run 90 miles per hour and was over 6 feet tall. He thought he had a lot to offer people, but you know, no one can see Mothman's inner beauty. So Mothman goes to the campfire. And he starts, uh, there's some abandoned food there, some cans of beans, you know, some pizza. So he just, like, starts eating it. Often he would hunt himself uh, when he was able to. But if there was already ready-made food that was abandoned by humans that were too afraid of him to talk to him, he would just have those scraps or whatever. He had whatever he could to get by. And he found one partially eaten pizza pie in its box from the pizza place Dino's in West Virginia. Point Pleasant, specifically. So he opened it up, and the pizza had pineapples on it. And he was just like, pineapple pizzas? I've, I've never heard of this before. So he had a slice, and he was just like, oh, fuck. This is really good. He had no another slice. He tried to eat it slower so he can savor the flavor. All the cheese and sauce and dough that he was used to. And then those bursts of pineapple flavor that really struck him. Just like, oh yeah, this is fucking awesome. And he thought, you know what? I'm gonna save the rest of this for later. So he left the camp. 
and he saw that they abandoned an acoustic guitar, so he brought that with him too. So he was carrying an acoustic guitar and a half-eaten pie of pineapple pizza and roamed the woods. The world was Mothman's oyster. He didn't know if Slenderman or Sasquatch existed, but he thought to himself, yeah, I'd hang out with those guys if they were real, you know. I'm often grouped with those people, so I'd be like, yeah, cool, let's all hang out. Let's uh, get together, play poker or whatever. But no, he's been just roaming West Virginia since 1966. Eventually he keeps walking through the woods and he sees an abandoned truck. He knows the woods very well, but he's never seen it before. It looks derelict and defunct. So he approaches it and hops inside. He sits in the driver's seat. Then he grabs the steering wheel and he starts turning it back and forth. And he's just like, oh shit, this must be like when it's driving. And he had a faint remembrance of something that he couldn't quite remember. Maybe back when he was human, if he was ever human. But he was just like pretending to drive in the truck and he's just like, oh, this is pretty cool. I get it. This is pretty fun. I can see why humans drive and stuff. But then the longer he did it, the more sadder he became. He was just like, alright, it's enough of this. So he hops out of the truck and grabs the pizza and guitar. And he sits outside the truck and he just starts strumming. He doesn't know how to play. He's found guitars before, had a couple of his own, but they'd always break over time. He didn't know what his life expectancy was. As far as he could remember, it was back into the mid-60s, and now it's 2020. He didn't know how long he had to live, or how much life he was wasting. But he tried to strum the strings on the guitar and just enjoy himself. He poked his fingers on the frets, trying to figure it out. It's like, okay, different pitch intervals. Yeah, I got that from the previous guitars I had. And when he was lucky, he even stumbled onto a few chords. So he tried to use the few chords he stumbled onto and try to make a song. It was only like a minute and a half. But to him, it was beautiful. and He wished he had someone to share it with. So he grabbed his pizza and his guitar and kept walking. As he was walking, he had another slice of pizza, and he was just like, oh, only three slices left. I better be careful with this. He thought about, he thought about going to Ohio or Vermont or New Hampshire, somewhere in New England maybe, and, you know, trying to meet people there. just wandering alone. The pizza was getting cold. He had another slice. He only had two slices left. And he found out that he liked the pizza. He preferred the pizza cold. Something he learned about himself in the 80s. And as he keeps walking, he sees a an RV. He's just like, huh, it's another RV. He noticed people in 2020 were camping with RVs a lot more. 
for reasons he couldn't quite discern, but it had something to do with some sort of global disaster that really motivated more people to camp. But he thought, oh, those are the humans' problems, not my own. So he, he stakes out by the RV, and he just watches the people there. It's apparently a couple, you know, a dude and a gal just talking about fishing, talking about traveling or whatever. And he's just like, oh, it's nice. What a wonderful couple, you know. And he keeps wandering, and he sees another RV, and it's just like, oh, it's just a string of RVs. So at this RV, he, some, he sees someone uh, set up a long chair in the grass and read a book. No one else, no one else comes by. No one else exits the RV. Mothman just sees him and he's just like, oh no. He's lonely too. From this, his hyper Mothman vision, he tries to see what book he's reading. And lo and behold, it's... The Mothman prophecies. Mothman is just like, oh shit, that's me. Mothman is just like, fuck, alright. Uh, I might have a shot of meeting this person. Ah, oh, god, I could really go for a friend. Mothman was realizing the depth of his loneliness during this over a half century of existence and lonely wandering. How he could use a friend or a lover, he didn't know. But just some form of companionship. Something besides the trash humans leave behind. Someone that he can love and can love him back, and they can accept each other unconditionally. Mothman tries to think of ways to approach this dude reading the Mothman prophecies. And he's just like, okay, okay, let me think. Um, he's read some poetry before. He can kind of read a little bit. He's read Shakespeare, you know. He's read some sonnets. He has a copy of all of Shakespeare's sonnets at a, back in his little, uh, at his cove, at his hiding spot, at his abode. And I was just like, okay, well, humans like poetry, you know. They like to be swooned, you know. So Mothman's thinking, yeah, maybe I can do something like that. That would be really cool. So the dude's just reading Mothman prophecies. And Mothman tries to approach the human very steadily, very slowly, not to spook him or anything like that. Mothman didn't have the guitar, but he had the box of pizza. He was just so nervous that he was still holding it. So eventually he approaches the human, and the human notices the shadow Mothman casts upon him from the moonlight. The human looks up, and then sees the deity he's been reading about. Mothman himself. The red eyes. The vibrant wings. All the fur and the... Every attribute a moth has, but attributed to a human, to a man. 
just stares at Mothman, frightened and terrified. So Mothman, feeling really nervous, he tries to clear his throat a little bit. And he presents the pizza box and opens it. And he says, to the best human dialect that he could muster, you are the pineapple on my pizza. Dude just screams and runs runs to his RV. A Mothman's just like, oh fucked. I fucked it up again, man. I don't know why I interact with all these humans. It's always just like a downward turn every time. Fifty years and more. I don't know how long I have to live, but if it's more of this shit, then I don't want to live anymore. And Mothman's just lamenting, just being like, fuck, I just did it again. Meanwhile, the dude in the RV, he has a shotgun with him and he's loading it. He looks outside and he sees Mothman from the window. And then he just sees Mothman just like throw the pizza box down and just like hit him, hit him, punch himself in the face. Just like, fuck, 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 in his own Mothman language. But the human could tell that Mothman was really beating himself up, literally. steps out. He's holding his shotgun behind him. He sees Mothman. Mothman looks back with his bright red eyes. And the dude says, hey, are you cool? Mothman, not knowing how to respond, he doesn't know a lot of human speak or English, but he's just like, he just nods, tries to say yeah, but it comes out as a Mothman like squeal, screech of short of sorts. So the dude nods and he's just like, okay. I could go for some pizza. At last, Mothman finds some companionship. Perhaps he'll also find the peace that he needs. This next episode deals with another milky substance, one that captures an epitome of whiteness. From episode 15, this story is called, Fuck Me Up. It was a wild party last night. <clears throat> it's been a non-stop party for ten nights straight. Partying was like a lifestyle all its own. You'd wake up at the crack of noon. Maybe exercise if you're into that sort of thing. Have some B vitamins good brunch or lunch depending on when you woke up. I always called the first meal of the day uh, breakfast, even if I didn't have it until 3 p.m. 
but this wet last week has been turning me into a party animal. And the party has been at uh, Dave's house. His parents were away, uh, traveling for a month. So every night he's just been having these parties. Now, I always wouldn't stay at the house, you know. At one point I had to call it a day and get some sleep. A lot of people just crashed there and lived there. It was like a commune situation was uh, happening there, you know. But nevertheless, I'd go out to Dave's house and party every night. I wanted people to remember Dave's parties. I met someone at older age who lived in the same town that I did. I wanted to be all like, oh, did you know Dave? And then they'd say, yeah. And I'd be all like, did you go to his parties? And they'd be like, oh, oh yes. You see, Dave's parties had their own lore to them, their own mythology. The way Candace would dance on the tables. The way the shag carpeting would have white powder embedded into it. And you couldn't tell if it was cocaine or salt with tequilas. That was part of the mystique of Dave's parties. Every night offered something new. My favorite nights of party at Dave's were on Fridays and Saturdays. Fridays was at, at the end of people's work weeks, so that was when they were ready to get rambunctious. But on Saturdays, everyone was getting boozed up, even more so than on Fridays. So out of all the nights, Saturdays were the days to let loose. At every imaginable capacity, whether it was sexually, physically through dancing, through substance, or through provocative conversations about television. Yes, Dave's nightly parties took all shapes and sizes. But this one Saturday when I went, it really... It really fucked me up. You see, the party went off as usual, you know. Start a little bit light in the afternoon, and then it would pick up as the night progressed. There'd be a DJ who wasn't always that good, but you know, I appreciated the effort, personally. There'd be some closed-off spaces in the house that only VIP guests could go to, which is really just close friends of Dave's, just so they could find a quiet spot to, like, smoke a bowl or something. But I was always on the dance floor. Tearing the floor open, 
tearing a rift in space-time. That's what I consider myself to be as a dancer. Maybe not everyone would agree, but, you know. Needless to say, I boogied. And I boogied hard. And when I went to Dave's parties, I was ready for anything. So, uh, as the night progressed, I was getting, uh, very inebriated, you know, doing a lot of the cannabis as well, and I even took a pill that I found behind a couch cushion, until my friend Bert came and approached me, and he said, hey, do you want to try something with me? And I was just like, hells yes. So I followed him past the bathrooms to a more quieter area, you know kind of in the garage. There are still people there, but less people, because not a lot of people wanted to be outside, need they get caught by any uh, law enforcement agencies that would patrol the streets at that time, or any sort of neighbors that will call those agencies and shut the party down. And everyone who appreciated Dave's parties didn't want to shut down. So they stayed on property and indoors to the best of their ability. Though a party like Dave's could never be tamed. So by a ping pong table that was being repurposed as a beer pong table, he said, hey, so I found this new thing and I want to try it. And I was like, yeah, he said that, so what's the thing? And he was just like, all right. So he took some tinfoil and unwrapped it. And... It looked like a piece of bread, like a piece of white bread, any kind you'd find in a supermarket, like Wonder Bread or something. But it looked a little bit different. It was a lot more pale than you would find typical breads. And it was very moist as well. It looked slimy and gooey, and I didn't really trust it. But politely I asked, what is this? And Bert said, well, what does it look like? And then I said, well, it looks like bread, you know. Wet bread, I guess. And Bert said, yeah, but what does the moistness look like? The moisture. And I was like, oh, I mean, I guess it kind of looks like milk. And then I thought about it, and I was just like, is it milk toast? And he was just like, yes. This is prime milk toast. And I was just like, I don't know if I wanna, I don't know if I want anything to do with milk toast, to be honest. And Bert said, listen, I know you've been going, raging at these parties for like the past week and a half or whatever. We always hang out and bond and all that jazz. And as your party friend, I want you to try some of this milk toast. So already, without my notice, he's just started to rip off a piece and started to eat it. And I was like, alright, I guess I'll try a piece, you know. I am up for anything at Dave's parties.
was chewing on it, and then he said, make sure you chew it as much as possible. You know, you really want it to be really, like, mushy and blorbous before you swallow it. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I kept chewing on it like it was a piece of gum, but it was already deteriorating in my mouth. And eventually, it slid down my throat hole, you know, without my say-so. It just kind of smothered down. So I was like, alright, cool. And Bert would be all like, yeah, wait till you see. And I was like, okay. So I went back to the dance floor, you know. And I was boogieing, you know. Some premiere dubstep was playing, you know. And I started to feel pretty woozy, you know. I didn't know if it was the alcohol, the cannabis, the uh, random pill I took behind that couch cushion. And I was just like, oh, maybe it's kicking in, I don't know. So eventually I have to go to the bathroom. I tried to put it off as long as possible because once you go once, you just keep going. So I wait in the long line, and then it's my turn, so I go to the bathroom. Then I do my thing in there, there. And then I look at myself in the mirror. And usually with the, in my experience, a new drug, the mirror is the last place you want to go. Because whatever distortion that drug has in your perception will immediately show in the mirror. I was just like, oh, what's gonna... I was getting nervous. I was like, what's gonna happen, you know? Is it gonna be like, oh, is it gonna look like the glass is melting and my reflection is just a distortion of myself? Or, or am I gonna get the spins or something? You know, what's gonna happen? But then I just looked and I just like, you know... Everything looks fine, you know? The effects of the other drugs I took didn't really, weren't really kicking in, in as much, and it just like, you know, it was as, as if I woke up on an early morning for work and I was looking at myself in the mirror and I was just like, ah, oh, this seems very plain, very average. So then I go exit the bathroom and I look at the line of people, and everyone's just like very sweaty and breathing really he heavy. Everyone's talking louder than they really have to, and they're all straining their voice, and I could hear the crackles in their voice, you know? The exhaustion, you know, of frying your vocal cords when you speak loudly at a party or a club or something. And I was just like, huh. Then I got back to the dance floor, and also it looked very plain. The lights weren't as mesmerizing as when I was originally dancing, you know, and I started to notice how the fog machine was not in sync with the movements of the party. It's just a random thing that would go every several minutes or so. And I'd see people dance and, you know, it's okay if people aren't good dancers, but it was definitely a, the dance floor just kind of looked like a, a hot, sweaty mess, you know very plain and boring. I was just like, what the fuck's going on? 
actually I step outside, uh, out of view of the street to smoke a cigarette. And I'm just like, yeah, the cigarette seems fine, you know. And I'm hearing other people smoke cigarettes and have conversations. And getting into, you know, that inebriated rambling that uh, people would get into four or five drinks in. But I was just like, yeah, I'm just capable of just a, you know, a well-paced, sober conversation. This is weird. What, what, what is this? So I go back into the house and try to track down Bert. And I'm just like, Bert, what the hell did you give me? And he was just like, it's crazy, right? And I was just like, what, what is this? And he was like, dude, milk toast. Stone cold sobriety, man. And I was like, no, this isn't quite sobriety. I've been sober plenty of times. At least for the first two decades of my life. Like, what, what is this? And he was just like, yeah, it's just milk toast, man. You know, you take it. And you feel just like very plain and boring and dull, you know? It's fucking crazy. And I was just like, well, that defeats the purpose of taking party drugs or something like that or whatever. And he was just like, nah, man. You see, what a lot of drugs do, you know, they just like push the envelope of your perception or your way of being or something, you know? Or certain feelings that you may have physically, you know? But this drug does the opposite. It just levels everything out and just makes everything super boring. I mean, I wouldn't say that things are boring when it comes to stone cold sobriety. But this milk toast drug really kicks that into the highest gear. And I'm just like, dude, I feel like I'm an IRS accountant or something. And Bert was like, yeah, man, it's crazy, right? And I was just like, no, this sucks. I want to let loose, you know? Sow my wild oats and all that jazz, you know? That's why I come to these parties. I want to push the envelope. And he was just like, dude, what's a more insane envelope to push than a tax document envelope? And he starts freaking me out. And then I just, I just leave. I try to think. I, say, I find a place on the couch. And someone's talking to me, talking to me very loud, and I'm very listening intently. I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. And I get up and... and I just leave leave the party and I just start going for a walk, you know, clear my head. You know, usually a walk would be good to sober up, but I didn't, I didn't know if that would work in this case. And I was just like, fuck, how long would this, how long would this milk toast last? I don't know. It was so painful, so plain and dull, you know. So eventually I just call it quits and go to my house and and then when I uh, go to sleep I wake up at around like at a reasonable hour, like between 8 and 9 and make myself some coffee and like an ample breakfast, you know. I didn't put any bacon, I didn't want anything greasy, you know, just uh one egg and some green vegetables on it. I didn't add any herbs or spices, just I wanted the basic healthy ingredients, you know. And I'm just like, oh, well. Alright, I finished breakfast. It's like 10 o'clock right now. I have the whole day 
rest the whole rest of the day for me before I go to Dave's. So then I start doing chores around the house, you know. And I was just like, oh, maybe this is a good opportunity for some job hunting or something. So I fill out some applications online, you know. And then I see that there's an availability at the IRS. And I was just like, oh, well, I'm good at counting. I think I can, I think I can do that kind of work, you know. No stranger to bureaucracy, I guess. You know, I can roll with it. So then I fill an application. And then it gets to the point where I don't even feel like going to Dave's, you know. Nor am I compelled to go to bed early. You know, I just spend the night in, you know. I don't do anything productive either, you know. I don't go into the workaholic realm. So I just, you know, I just kind of sit quietly for a couple hours, not really doing anything, not on my phone, I'm not talking to anyone, not watching anything, reading anything, learning anything, just sitting quietly, you know, I stare at the wall for a bit, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, that's a nice wall, and then, uh, once I'm staring at the wall, five hours pass, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, what's happening? Life is passing me by on this milk toast drug. next day, same rhythm. I didn't even go to Dave's, I just went to sleep. And then I just, yeah, I just have an ample breakfast, ample-sized meal, you know, with no flavor intensity or anything, just some basic stuff, you know. And then I just spare, send, I just spend, I just, you know, I get my tasks done for the day, and I just spend the rest of the time just, like, staring at a wall or something. Eventually, a week later, I'm not going to Dave's and just spending time to myself, not really doing anything. Not even, when I say I'm doing nothing, it's not even in a zen way when you're like meditating or contemplating. Not even the kind of nothing that's required every once in a while, uh, as distancing yourself from screens and really getting reacquainted with yourself. This was just pure, dull, boring nothing. So I do get a call, and it's from the IRS, and they're just like, hey, do you want to come in for an interview? And I'm just like, yeah, sure, that sounds really cool. I didn't say it was really cool, you know. I didn't want to use that type of slang, you know. I say, oh yes, that sounds very excellent, thank you. It's something that I started doing, I just started saying thank you after every sentence, even when it was unwarranted, you know. So I go in for the IRS interview, and I bring in my CV, you know, as a the degree that I earned in the previous jobs. So then we're just chatting, you know, about the weather, you know, things like that. And talking about, you know, yeah, just how monitoring uh, tax services is a very important thing, both in the country and just in the world in general, you know. And I was just like, yeah, it's very, yeah, this is, it's good stuff, you know? I'm thrilled to be here, I kept saying. And then he gave me an enthusiastic handshake. I reciprocated with a moderate grip. And he said, all right, well, let you know. He seemed pretty jovial about it, so I was like, yeah, it's good. It's a good opportunity to work at the IRS. 
pretty excited about it. So when I got back, I was so excited that I just, I just stared at the wall again until I went to sleep. And two days later, they call me back and say, hey, we want you in for the uh, IRS. You got that accountant job, you know, or be working for this region. I'd be like, oh, that's great. Thank you. So then I go in for my first day of work at the IRS, you know? I pack my lunch, you know? Have a nice cheese and turkey sandwich with no condiments on it. And, you know, just some water to stay hydrated, you know? I was even feeling a little bit edgy and filled my thermos with some chicken noodle soup from a can. So yeah, this is good, this is good. And then, you know, I'm sitting in my cubicle, you know, feeling good about my first day. I get along with everyone, you know, hanging out by the water cooler, you know, just doing tax, you know, just going through tax documents, and if someone doesn't, uh, if someone, is, if someone isn't up to snuff on how they record their taxes, I just, like, you know, notify my superiors and then send them to their doom but i don't think about it as doom i just think about it as a good and important service so yeah so you know it's going great so far at the irs and it was a really great month month first month working at the irs just getting to know everyone and everything like that you know i start to wave ch change the way i dress a little bit you know I don't wear khakis, because that's a bit too edgy, you know, but I got some really plain checkered shirts. Occasionally I wear a plain tie, you know. And yeah, it's just it's going well, you know. I start doing this thing where I have a big pen in my ear, so I'm ready to, you know, jot some notes about the tax stuff at the IRS, you know. Good old-fashioned American bureaucracy, you know, that's what we joke about, you know. You know, some people at the IRS were also quiet, you know, they didn't really talk much. If I didn't know any better, I'd say they're, they were unhappy, but, you know, I would have no idea why. I was having a great time at the IRS, you know. And I was already scheduling my vacation, you know. I was just gonna go to the beach, you know. Usually what I like to do is just stare at walls in my house. But I was just like, oh no, yeah, this time I'll just sit on the beach, you know. It'll be, you know, it'll be a nice, typical American vacation. So one day when I'm working at the IRS, I run into Bird. And I'm just, I recognize him. I'm just like, oh, he seems familiar. Have I met him before? And Bert's, like, fumbling with a lot of, like, folders and whatnot, very, uh, studious about it, you know. We were on our lunch break, and he was, like, taking some notes about one thing or another. You know, working while lunch, you know, I always respected people like that, you know. Something I definitely strive for when it came to working at the IRS. So I go up to him and I say, hey, have we met before? And he's just like, oh, yeah, hey, I'm Bert, you know, from Dave's party. And I thought, Dave... And then I vaguely remembered, yeah, I used to know a Dave. I did used, used to go to his parties. I don't really remember him too well. But yeah, I guess we did meet at uh, one of his parties. Sure, how are you? You know? And he's just like, oh, I'm great, man. How about this, how about this drug, am I right? And I say, what do you mean? 
and he's just like the milk toast. It's fucking nuts, right? I've just been binging on it. And I thought, that's right. I did take a milk toast drug. And it did technically lead me here. So I guess I'm still high, I suppose. So I sat at a sat at the table at the in the lunchroom, in the break room, you know, with the pale yellow on the walls and all that. And I'm just like thinking about it, yeah, I took that drug and really really turned my life around, you know? started working for the IRS shortly afterwards. But then I'm thinking about it more, and I'm starting to think about my identity, and I'm just like, oh, did... Did taking that one drug really spiral my identity into this person working at the IRS? And that's when I suddenly sobered up. The milk toast drug wore off. And I came back to myself and I realized, holy shit, I'm working at the IRS and I'm a government employee. And he was just like, I was just like, oh no, what have I done? All of this nonstop partying with these mysterious floor drugs has now led me here. Oh no. And Bert went up to me, and he's just like, Oh, you're feeling alright, mister? And I was just like, Oh, no, it's the, the drug wore off, and I'm, I'm panicking, you know, realizing just like, Oh, no, where have I steered my life? So I'm working at the IRS, you know? I'm correcting tax information and sending impoverished families to their doom. Uh, this is awful. What have I done? What kind of work am I doing? And then Bert said, Alright, take it easy. Take it easy, you're having a very vicious come down. I got something for you. So he pulled he pulled out his lunch bag. And then another piece of tin foil. He unwrapped it, and it was another piece of toast. With that milky substance off substance off it. That milky substance on it. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, I got some more milk toast. If you want more milk toast, I got that for you. Don't worry, you know. Yeah, the come down's really hard on this drug, you know. And I started panicking, and I'm just like, oh, you know, coping with myself of wanting to work at the IRS in the first place. I take some breaths, and I think, oh, well, if I take this drug again, it might send me back. But also, I don't want a aggressive come down. This, I'll do anything to trade away this panic. So I said, yes, I'll take a bite. I'll take a bite. And then he cuts off a piece with a plastic knife. And he sticks it on a plastic fork and he gives me the fork. And then without thinking, I eat it. I chew on it as long as I can. You know, until, until it dissolves in my mouth and I just let it slide down my throat. And then, after a few minutes, I start to calm down.
so harrowing. If only he knew that the source of pain often isn't its cure. This last story is a love story about a woman who asks, what can you give to a man who thinks he has it all? From episode 11, this story is called, I Love Fidel. club circle, Bernard said, well, I could have sworn that PBR and got PBR got their blue ribbon from the Chicago World's Fair. I mean, it said it on the can. And then the woman, uh, Cheryl, who recounted her family's plight, said, no, that's wrong. And yes, my name is Cheryl, because... If I have a descendant who's super, who's participating in the Chicago World's Fair, then like my main, my name's probably Cheryl. No, it's Denise. But I digress. The moderator said yes, yes. Let's all, let's all simmer down. I know we all like to now. That was a good story, uh, Karen. It's, it's Denise. It's Cheryl, right? Denise. I mean Cheryl. Sorry. I'm sorry. You just, you look like a Karen. You know. I mean. I mean, the first two stories were just, like, specific, like, horrific plights, but, like, your, you know, yours was more about just, like, yeah, well, voting for beer, you know, it's for, like, a, for, like, a festival that was about Christopher Columbus, like, I mean, that's horrifying, I'm sure still being harassed for that decision 100 years later is awful, but it's not quite seeing your, uh, parents being eaten by an animatronic rat in a school band, or, you know, just being so itchy you have to shove yourself into a freezer. You know, but it's still, still, you're still welcome in the Moonlight Club, you know. But, uh, yeah, we're wrapping up for the evening. What, uh, you know, everyone has their own trauma, their own horrific occurrences here. You're all welcome here. It's all been very valuable to hear your stories to connect with each other and to grow from them and to learn from them and to ultimately let go of them. So as we wrap, wrap up for the night, does anyone have any final stories for this uh, Moonlight Club uh, session? And then there's this one woman named Victoria smoking a cigarette in, a, in the back. And she just says... My story is about love. And the moderator says, "Okay. Um, so it's about love. Okay, what's your what's your story about?" And then she just paused with her cigarette and she said, "I was romantic with Fidel Castro." And then everyone in the story was just very awkward and quiet. So the moderator said, okay, okay, well, if you want to get into it, we're all listening. And then Victoria just said, very well. I was, on, I was only in Cuba as a, on a visitation pass. Originally it was on a, this was still during the long-term embargo 
were going on tour of all the government-sanctioned uh, type of things that they wanted tourists to see and all that jazz. Not as extreme as you'd see from North Korea, but still, it was a guided tour group for sure. So eventually I break away from the group and I go explore the vacation on my own terms, you know. I get a new hotel room, so no one's suspicious of me. So then, yes, I explore bookshops, I explore art museums, I explore the cultural avenues and facets of Cuba, of the beauty of its landscapes and of its people. I meet a lot of awesome people, and they just tell me these great stories, you know, some about traveling, some about traveling, some about just hanging out in Cuba, and I think it's very beautiful and profound, you know. So one day in Havana, I'm just sitting there drinking coffee, and then I hear a table behind me, and they're talking about a party they're going to. It's, uh, at Fidel Castro's brother's house. So I eavesdrop on the conversation, and they're just like, oh yeah, we might, yeah, Fidel might actually uh, make an appearance. Yeah, we can actually, oh, this will be really good for us politically, you know? Like, yeah, right, right. So I listen to the conversation, and they eventually uh, speak about the address of, the address and date of this party. So I think, well, while I'm, while I'm on vacation, I'm gonna party with some Castros. If it's the last thing I do. So as the night arrives, I go to the abode. And I'm wearing some sort of like fur mink thing. I have a cigarette. And then the bouncer at the door says, Oh yeah, you're are you invited to the party? You on a, are you on a list? And I say, darling, I don't need to be on a list. I'm always invited. And then the dude was like, alright, shit, just come on right in. And she's, and I was just like, yes, thank you. That's how you get invited to parties, darling. So at the party is, uh, all of, uh, Cuba's political elites that you'd find in the 1980s. Mostly Castro's, you know. So I'm just walking around and mingling with people, they're talking about Cuba and talking about other places, talking about communism and all that jazz, and I'm just like, oh yes, yes, communism, oh, tell me about it. So I'm just mingling at a party as, as if mingling at the party like any party I would anywhere in the world. Across the room, I see him. Fidel Castro himself. He's smoking a cigar, just like I imagine he would. And it's just like, uh, if I didn't know any better, I'd say that was the sexy, sexiest man alive. In his green um, army suit. 
that outfit he always wears. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but needless, needless to say, I was swept off my feet. And the first time in my romantic life, I was too afraid of coming onto him. The words, they couldn't come to me. I was just swooned by the sight of him. By his beard, by his little hat. And eventually I just have another drink. I just grab some wine from the other side of the room. I talk to a talk to some people about the uh, libraries and Cuba and whatnot. And I just pass it off as just like typical conversation, like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, yes. Beautiful books, beautiful libraries, wonderful art books. I love going to libraries. I love sitting in there for hours. And then suddenly I turn around, and there's the man himself, Fidel Castro. And he said, I didn't mean to interrupt your riveting conversation, but I think you're the most beautiful woman here. I thought I would tell you. And I thought, oh, Fidel, you flatter me. <laughs> I tried really hard to play hard to get with Fidel Castro. And I say, ah, I'm sure you've seen more beautiful women on your world travels, on your diplomatic trips, in various facets of your life. And then he just said simply, not like you, my darling. And I say, oh, darling. I say darling. If he says darling, that surely must mean we're compatible. And I won't go into the details of that night, but it was hot and it was heavy. This romantic evening with Fidel Castro. And then we spend a couple nights like that. During the day, he goes off doing uh, dictator stuff, I guess. And then, <laughs> and then he comes back and then we fuck. Simple as that. And then I just say, Fidel, darling, I'm only, you know, I have a job to go to in, a, in the States, you know. My visa for vacationing only lasts for so long. And he says, don't worry about it, darling. I'll take care of it. You can stay as long as you'd like. As long as you'd like. And I say, oh, yes, I shall. So weeks turn into months. Sometimes we go on public outings on dates. Sometimes we just make sweet love in the moonlight. And sometimes I just go off, on, go off on my own in Cuba, in Havana, going to libraries, going to museums. I have my life and he has his, but he lets me crash at his place whenever. And then when I do, we fuck like bunnies. Like prize-winning breeding bunnies. Black is the night sky. Not a reference to any specific bunnies, or is it? 
the romance goes on for six months at this, this point. And I can tell that he's growing a bit bored of me. Talking about other political shenanigans. Talking about dodging assassinations. Because he was... A lot of people tried to assassinate him. It's actually... It's historically remarkable, but I digress. And he didn't... He was never assassinated, which is the other... That's... That fucking guy. That's why I love him, you know? No one can successfully kill him. And how is that not sexy? <laughs> but I notice he gets word of me, so I don't know... What to do about it. I try to think, well, how can I demonstrate my value to show that Fidel needs me as much as I need him. So I go to the libraries in Cuba and try to figure things out, read as many books as I can so I can discuss as much as I can, but even still, I still seem to board him. try to ponder the only way I can think to seduce a man who has it all is to do something that no man has ever seen before there are a couple books I read in the Cuban libraries that refer to specific rituals, a specific darkness that exists in humankind, in the universe. So I read those books more thoroughly, and they lead me to more books, and eventually I may become a master of the occult. So I think the only way I can win Fidel's heart is to summon the dead itself. It's a feat no man has accomplished, and he's the kind of man that wants to accomplish feats. If he can be the first dude that can make contact with the dead, that would give him such a fucking raging boner. Boy, boy howdy. And that boner will be mine. So, as I'm crashing at his house, I go into the room that we share together. He's off doing like diplomatic stuff, politician, dictator things, smoking a lot of cigars, surely. It's this little green outfit, you know. God bless it. It's a stellar outfit, but he does wear it a lot. We've had romantic conversations about it, but he's not gonna change that for me, so who knows? So during this day, I dabble with the ritual, make sure I got it right. Think okay, I'm ready. So he comes over and he's just like, "Oh yeah, let's make love." But I can tell the passion is in in his eyes. So I say, "Fidel, I have something to show you." And he's just like, "Oh," and I'm just like, "Yes." You see, I've developed the ability to contact the dead. How would you like to be the first politician and nation leader to make contact with the dead? 
And he says, well, that, that gives me a boner. And I'm just like, yeah, I bet it does. So I'm gonna fucking contact some ghosts. We're gonna get a hard on. Gonna be on par with the discovery on fire. Forever associated with your name. And he was just like, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. If you can do that, yeah, sure. Just like, all right. So I, I perform the ritual. I, uh, you know, a lot of the ritual things I got from like Western occult books. So it's a bit dicey, but I do what I can. I do some chants and all that jazz candles, and then eventually we have contact with ghosts. They swirl around where, around the room like a hurricane wind. And I say, spirits, are you with us? And then they bellow, yes, yes. Alright, my lover has some requests. He wants to make contact. Fidel says, oh, this is amazing. So I'm just like, alright, Fidel, take the lead. <coughs> Whatever you want to say to the spirits, just now's the time. And he says, okay. Spirits, I want you to help me get laid. And I'm just like, what? And he's just like, help me get laid, you know, just have a lot of sex with a lot of people. If you could do that, that'd be swell. And I'm just like, Fidel, what's the fuck? And he was just like, what? They're spirits. They can do cool shit, you know? And I was just like, Fidel, but I thought we were like, you loved me. And Fidel was just like, well, you know, I was like sleeping with other people. And he was, and I was just like, oh, but Fidel, I thought we had something special. Oh, my fragile heart. Ugh. And Fidel was just like, well, we don't, you know, we can use the spirits, whatever you want. And the spirit said, use us. And Fidel was just like, well, not like that. And then suddenly there was a bellow and a hurricane. The house was shaking. And then it's suddenly very quiet. Me and Fidel, we look at each other in the most intimate way I can ever remember. He's just like, what happened? I'm just like, I don't know. And then he says, you really need to work on your Spanish. And I'm just like, now's not the time for that conversation. So, I go and we look around the house and all of, uh, all of the servants that uh, stayed at his house are dead. He tries to make some phone calls to some political colleagues and some other contacts as well, but they're all dead. And he's just shaking his head, rubbing his forehead. He lights his cigar and says to me, I think he should leave. And I say, Fidel, but I love you. I contacted the dead and the spirits for you. And he just shakes his head and says, I think you should leave. So I go, I pack my things. I go back to America, 
I stay at a hotel until I get a place on my own. Unable and unable to cope with the loss of such a harrowing breakup. I came here to the Moonlight Club, and I guess you're a new moderator, but that's my story. Fidel's long been deceased, but I haven't been able to contact him because he doesn't want to talk to me. So the moderator says, well, uh, that's a lot. Um, well, I think this meeting for the Moonlight Club is adjourned. Uh, I think we've all learned from each other. And then Victoria says, wait, 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 I... No, that's, that's not the end of my story. And the moderator says, oh, well, okay, Victoria, well, do you want to continue with your Fidel love story? And she said, it's not a love story, it's a harrowing breakup. I contacted the dead. I don't think you understand. I can contact Bernard's parents. I can do... I can taunt... I can contact, uh, that one person's, uh, great-grandfather. I can do all of that. You don't understand what I can do. And the moderator says, okay, Victoria, well... I mean, what are you, what are you getting at here? And Victoria says... Fidel's here, you know. The moderator says, what? And Victoria says, yes. I summoned him, and I love him. He hates what I've done to him, and he wants vengeance. And then the moderator says, okay, well, if he's here, we, uh... Alright, let's all, let's all get out of here. So everyone in the Midnight Club, they all leave... And the moderator says to Victoria, like, Victoria, you gotta, you gotta leave too. Uh, you don't want a, uh, deceased spirit to have vengeance on you. That doesn't look good. That's never good for anyone. And she's just like, I don't care. I love Fidel. I'll take whatever vengeance he has upon me. And the moderator just says, okay, alright. So then they are, they're all outside of the building. A lot of lights flash inside of the building where they had their meeting. And they're all waiting outside because they're all anticipating how Victoria is going to make amends to Fidel. Or how Fidel is going to take vengeance on Victoria. Eventually 20 minutes go by. And, and Victoria comes out of the building. And she looks very solemn and sad. And then the moderator says, well, what happened? I thought, uh, after all the fucked up shit you did to Fidel, I'm sure he would have taken vengeance on you. And then Victoria looked up at the moderator and then just said, Fidel doesn't even care. feel for her, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that courting an authoritarian is a bad move. And that wraps up this volume of Best of Spook Show. If you want to hear more improvised stories on Quarantine Spook Show, 
Submit your story titles to quarantinespookshow at gmail.com. I'm Kyle Carezzi. Good night.